You're listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's program is entitled In. Hello my radio friends. I'm glad you've joined me today for another Give Me the Bible program. Today we're considering the fascinating topic of in. That little word has a host of meanings. The general meaning of in expresses the situation of something that appears to be enclosed or surrounded by something else. A second meaning is about being bound by a particular time period. Here are some common usages of in. She's in love. They're in debt. It's in the cupboard. Custom jewellery is in fashion. I'll be there in a jiffy. Recorded in the Bible... In the Gospel of John is the prayer of Jesus where he said in several times. I'll read it to you commencing at chapter 17 and verse 20. Jesus said, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one with us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and I have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. There are some interesting issues in Jesus' prayer that need explaining. They are oneness and the relationship between Jesus and the Father, and made perfect, and the expression with me, and another one, beholding my glory. And we'll deal with these a little later in the program. The whole of John chapter 17 is Jesus' prayer. He firstly prays for himself. Then he prays for his disciples, and lastly he prays for all believers. The section I read to you was part of Jesus' prayer for all believers. Those believers include you and me in this day and age. Now it is interesting that Jesus explained that he and the Father were in each other rather than with Further on, Jesus said that his believers would be in him and he in them. 
So, what here is the significance of the term in? Using the word in suggests the closest intimacy there is. It's like saying that one party is part of the other. If Jesus is with us, that's good. But to say that he is in us is even better. It means he's part of our being and we are part of his being. So, how does Jesus come in to us? Well, he'll never come into us unless we invite him. He does not force his way. And Revelation 3 verse 20 makes that perfectly clear, where Jesus says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Now this is sort of metaphorical language. And the door is the entrance to your heart and mind. To eat together is one of the most pleasurable activities people can enjoy together in harmony and fellowship. When Jesus comes into our hearts, he lives within us by his Holy Spirit and in doing so prompts and guides us. His values become our values and his morality becomes our morality. Another descriptive language in the Bible speaks about the saints being clothed in a white robe, meaning the righteousness of Christ. And that comes about because Christ dwells within us. You may have heard about or read about people who become possessed by the devil, or at least an evil spirit, a demon. When that happens, the demon controls the person. Thus possessed, that person may do things that are totally out of character with them. But when Christ dwells within us, he gently leads us to make right decisions, to do good and to live lives of righteousness, of peace and service to others. It's like having a new master whom we want to please as well as those whose company we want to enjoy. My friends, it's a wonderful experience to be in Christ and for Christ to be in us. But don't forget, he will not come until he is invited. There are some religious groups such as Muslims and Jehovah Witnesses who do not believe in the Trinity. They say that there is only one God, meaning that there is only one personality who is God. But such is not the case. Jesus is also God. I often refer to him as God the Word because he came to this earth to reveal to mankind what God the Father is like. In John 17 verse 24, Jesus spoke about the glory he had with the Father 
before the creation of the world. In the very first chapter of the Gospel of John is this clear statement about the status of Jesus. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that was made. And as you read further, the Word is clearly identified as Jesus the Christ. Some people stop at Jesus, although the Bible goes on to say that the Holy Spirit is also God and whose name is always written in the, in the Bible as a proper noun. In Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, are some of the last words Jesus said to his disciples. He said, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is equated with God the Father and God the Son. And then further in Acts chapter 5, we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira, who had a piece of property they sold and promised to give all the proceeds to the church but they decided afterwards to give only part, not the whole of the proceeds. When they came to the Apostle Peter to hand the money over, Peter knew what was happening. He said to Ananias, Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit. He later reminded Ananias of his promise and then added, you have not lied to men, but to God. So, who had Ananias lied to? Well, it was God, the Holy Spirit. So, God, sometimes referred to as the Trinity, consists of three personalities. God the Father, God the Son, or Word, and God the Holy Spirit. But doesn't the Bible talk about one God? Yes, it does. But we need to understand that one God does not necessarily mean one personality. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus stated, I and the Father are one. Jesus described himself as being in the Father and the Father in him. They act as one. Now, if you're fortunate enough to have a pair of good binoculars, go outside on a starry night and look up into the sky. Pick out a star with your naked eyes and then look at that same star with the binoculars. You may be surprised to find that the star may appear blurry even when your binoculars are properly focused. Why? It's because you, beca you could be looking at not a single star, but a galaxy of stars, a cluster of multi-millions of stars.
Or you may have seen on a documentary a ball of sardines swimming in the sea. While there are many sardines in that ball, they act as one. And so it is with God. Three personalities, one purpose. And do you know what the main purpose of God is? Well, it's to save sinful human beings like you and me. The Anglican Bishop Tony Palmer was at one stage Pope Francis' envoy. He used John 17 to try to convince Protestants to come home to Rome to to join in ecumenical worship with the Roman Catholics. Palmer spoke about that all of them be one Father just as we are one. Palmer's thrust was, well, it doesn't matter what people believe, they just need to identify themselves as worshippers of God. Now, Palmer died not long after he preached this sermon to a large group of evangelical Protestant believers. But being one as Christ and the Father are doesn't mean that people should be united in error. They should be united in truth. What Palmer was pushing was that people should forget their differences and be joined with the Catholic Church. Then, as he claimed, they would all be one. Would that be a good thing or not? In my opinion, it's a bad thing. Why? Well, the reason for the Reformation was that Protestants wanted to know and believe what God's Word, the Bible, taught. They were sick of being treated indifferently by the Catholic Church, where they were just being fed tradition and not the words of life from the Scriptures. And there still exists a powerful push to try to convince Protestants to come back to Catholics. Has that movement been successful? Well, probably yes, because many unbiblical Catholic teachings have crest, have sorry, have crept into Protestant beliefs. We're going to stop here, and I'm going to share with you some of those teachings that have snuck into the uh, into the protestant churches after the break well i'm tired and so weary but i must go along till the lord comes and calls calls me away Oh yes, well the morning's so bright And the Lamb is the light And the night, night is as black as the sea Oh yes There will 
be peace in the valley for me, dear Lord, I pray. be peace in the valley for me. Before the break, I was um, saying to you that there are many unbiblical Catholic teachings that have crept into Protestant beliefs, and here are some of them. Number one, the eternal punishment of the wicked in hell belief. Another one, Sunday worship, in place of God's specific instruction to keep the seventh day holy. Another one, the belief that when someone dies they're not dead, but take on another form in another place. And then there's the belief that the church, the big organisation, must interpret scripture. And there are more. Unfortunately, there are many religious groups that have a little truth and a lot of error. My friends, don't you get hooked by the call to religious unity, when that so-called eucumenism is based on error and not truth. Jesus wants us to be united in truth. Another aspect of Jesus' prayer was in John 17:23, where he said that believers be made perfect. Now I recognise that of myself I'm not perfect. And I'm fairly certain you're not either. How can something that is imperfect, damaged and corrupted by sin and a sinful nature, become perfect? Of ourselves, try as we might, we will never become perfect. But with Jesus living in us, we can be perfect by accepting him and his perfection, his perfection becomes our perfection. 
I, re- I heard a really good illustration that I'd like to share with you. It's this. The Christian life is like a railway line. There are two rails. When someone accepts Christ and their sins are forgiven, that's known as justification. There we are instantly forgiven and stand before God perfect. That perfection, of course, is Christ's perfection, which he gives us. So that's the one rail. But there's more. As we live our day-to-day lives, there has to be growth. Each day we should become more like Christ, taking on his habits, his values, and his good works. That growth in the Lord is known as sanctification, and that's the other rail. As we proceed in our Christian lives, there needs to be both justification and sanctification. Although we are declared perfect in Christ when we are forgiven, we need to develop right habits and characteristics. Say, for example, someone has a bad temper. When that person is forgiven, according to what the Bible says, he or she is declared righteous. Although the tendency to blow their fuse may still exist, as that person merges his or her life in Christ, as Christ lives in him or her, the bad temper will disappear, not necessarily overnight, but will eventually go. It's the same with other negative traits and tendencies. As we are exposed to and absorb the characteristics of Christ, those bad tendencies will go. Like the railway tracks, there needs to be both justification and sanctification in the life of a Christian. You see, we all have a sinful nature, and with Christ in us, that sinful nature will slowly change, and we will become more like Christ. In Jesus' prayer, he mentioned that believers would behold his glory. What did he mean? Jesus often called himself the Son of Man, but at the same time he was the Son of God. He was God, and his first appearance was not when he showed up on earth as the babe of Bethlehem. He existed long before that. Colossians 1 verse 16, John 1, the first three verses, and Hebrews 1 1, all say much the same thing, that Jesus was the creator of the worlds. He left heaven and came to this earth for the purpose of redeeming fallen mankind. After his resurrection, he went back to heaven, and that's where he is now. But he has promised to return to earth with the sole purpose to take back with him to heaven those who've been faithful to him. John 14, 1-3 and 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 are quite clear about that. When the faithful ones, the redeemed, accompany Jesus back to heaven, they will see for themselves the glory which Jesus 
God the Word has. I've seen the beauty, the sheer opulence in some castles in Europe. Rooms are so exquisitely designed and furnished, they almost made me gasp with wonder. But those beautiful rooms are nothing compared to the glory of where God dwells. When we, the redeemed, see the glory of Christ, we will understand more fully the sacrifice he made when he came to earth to live as a human being in order to redeem us. Not only that, but as Isaiah put it in chapter 53, he was bruised for our iniquities. He was oppressed and he was afflicted for us. When we go with Jesus to heaven, he will present us to God the Father and he'll say something like this, Father, here are they for whom I gave my life. Here are they for whom we have all worked so hard to save. And that'll be a glorious day when we have the opportunity to see firsthand the glory of the Lord. Before we finish today, there's something else about Christ in us. It's from John 15 where Jesus amplifies the idea of him being in us and us in him. He used the illustration of a vine where he represents the rootstock. Believers are the branches. As long as the sap flows from the rootstock through the branches, there's a living connection and the branches live. But when a branch is severed from the vine, the sap stops flowing and it dies. If you would have eternal life, it's important that Christ is in you and that you are in him. My friends, this is how I choose to live, and I hope that choice is yours too. If you haven't invited Christ into your life, why don't you do it now? Simply say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner, but I want to be made whole. Please come into me and fill me with your spirit and direct me because I want to be yours. With that, you may come to experience a peace and joy that most people will never know. May God bless you to that end, my friends, and I hope you will join me next time for another Give Me the Bible program. <music> 